Welcome to the Hong Kong on Screen podcast, brought to you by Hong Kong on Screen, a Los Angeles-based nonprofit organization promoting films and culture of Hong Kong. Hello, welcome back to the Hong Kong on Screen podcast. Today we're continuing our multi-part series on our landmark documentary, Revolution of Our Times. Today we have a special guest with us, Miss Anna Kwok, who is one of the people behind the distribution of the film in the United States. Anna, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit first? Hi, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's really an honor to be here to share about uh, the making of the Revolution of Our Times distribution, specifically here in the U.S. So I'm Anna Kwok, and currently I'm the Strategy and Campaign Director at the Hong Kong Democracy Council. And last year, back in December, I organized a round of nationwide screenings for the Revolution of Our Times in the U.S. And this year in April, I also organized another round of nationwide screening as part of their wider uh, global screening campaign. And a bit more, you know, uh, background about myself is that I actually did make some films when I was in college because even though right now I work in the political arena, but back then I was an aspiring uh, filmmaker that I used to you know, work on film productions as both a production designer and also a film director sometimes. So it's really, you know, I'm really grateful and really happy that today I'll be able to share a bit about you know, my experience with film, but this time in particular about my work uh, in the distribution of uh, ROOT. That's great, yeah. Distribution is definitely part of filmmaking and the film process as well. So yeah, let's talk a bit about your journey and how it began. So when did you come in contact with this film and when did you know about it and when did you start working on it? Right, so actually to talk about that story, I think we have to rewind a bit even further uh, back to last year in September. And that was when our new team at the Hong Kong Democracy Council started you know, uh, taking office and beginning to reinvent and reimagine what could HADC do because HADC uh, was founded in 2019 during the peak of the Hong Kong movement and at that time HADC was more like an extension or an arm for U.S. advocacy here in the United States and at that time the organization focused mostly on uh, policy advocacy but not so much on you know the other work uh, for example diaspora building uh, cultural preservation or research and education that we're doing right now so when we're thinking of what HADC could be uh, because of the national security law, a lot of people have to go into exile. And you saw that, you know, the diaspora of Hong Kongers were forming at the time. But then really, um, it's not only about the people that are going into exile, but also the cultural products, right? You start to see films, books, mm -hmm. or even ideas being banned inside of Hong Kong. So at that time, after we expanded our work stream from efficacy into three pillars of work, including efficacy, diaspora building, and research and education, we started to think what are some possible uh, uh, campaigns or possible events that we can host to really strengthen uh, the diaspora, at least here in the United States. And um, our discussion started you know, way back in September, but somehow in, I think, early November, I was contacted by the Revolution of Our Times team, and they told us they were actually very interested in doing a screening here in the United States. And of course, I was really 
I was really grateful at the moment because uh, I knew that Revolution of Our Times had a lot of difficulty in, you know, the filmmaking process, the editing process, and even the fundraising process. And we also knew that the film could not be seen in Hong Kong. And as a filmmaker myself before, I would understand that nobody would like to see uh, their work go into waste like that, right? You cannot imagine, you know, a film you put mm -hmm. so much efforts in uh, can just, you know, not be seen anywhere at all. And of course, also that film has a lot of meaning for Hong Kongers and a movement as well. And that's why when they asked us if we would be interested in collaborating on a campaign like that, we immediately said yes. And uh, that's why we went into work immediately and started thinking of a nationwide campaign. In the very beginning, they were only thinking about screening the film in New York, maybe only New York and Los Angeles at most, because they were really looking into the film capitals in the US. Right. But uh, at the time, because HADC really wanted to unite Hong Kongers and to consolidate the foundation of our diaspora, so I counter-proposed if they would be interested in hosting US nationwide campaign instead. And after some back and forth, they agreed. And that's why, you know, in the end, we have um, screenings in, I think, eight cities with more than 13 co-hosting partners. And we had uh, more than 47 screenings in the end. And it all started in November. Um, and the screening campaign was held in December. Yeah, just to clarify, you're talking about 2021, right? Yes. So what were the goals that you set out to achieve when you embarked on this campaign? And do you think you achieved these goals? Yes, yeah, so one of the main goals of distributing the film, firstly, is definitely uh, as a way to consolidate the U.S. diaspora at the time. Because I think when I first uh, started working at HADC, I could really feel that uh, the community is kind of lost. They didn't know how they could continue uh, being Hong Kongers in the U.S., uh, because, you know, uh, a lot of groups uh, back then, they did protests and assemblies, um, but all those were in response to things that were happening in Hong Kong. But nowadays, you don't really have, you know, large-scale protests in Hong Kong. It's definitely not something we can imagine. And therefore, it's more uh, difficult for uh, overseas organizers to imagine what they could do so to support Hong Kongers. And when now we're facing, you know, a community in exile, uh, one thing that people are trying to understand or trying to work more on is to create that sense of being a Hong Konger. So I think, you know, the one of the goals we have is to strengthen the identity of being a Hong Konger. And uh, secondly, it's to get more people involved in these local community groups, because in 2019, a lot of people would show up in protests and join these groups. And but then in 2021, really, uh, when you even host a protest in New York City, a place where a lot of Hong Kongers live in, uh, maybe there would only be a few dozens of people, which is not a lot. So people have been thinking of ways to really break that uh, bottleneck, to find ways to connect to more Hong Kongers. Turns out the film was actually a great medium because uh, it's something that people see a new kind of value in. People want a hub or a medium for them to perhaps process some of our, their sentiment. So really, secondly, the goal of distributing the film is to attract more Hong Kongers and pull more Hong Kongers into this network of our uh, political diaspora. Thirdly, I think uh, another thing is also to give a more personal dimension 
to what happened in the 2019 movement. Because、mm. as you understand,、um, HADC used to be this you know, policy advocacy group. And back then, really, a lot of what we do is go onto the Hill and you know, talk about Hong Kong's story. But in a way, sometimes、uh, we have to talk a lot about numbers and data. For example, we talk about oh, Hong Kong now has you know, 1,100 political prisoners, more than 10,000 political arrests. But when you talk about Hong Kong's situation in a numbered or data driven sense like that, you lose that kind of human element. You lose that personal touch.、Right. And that is exactly what the film is trying to bring, right? To see、right. what are the very real personal struggles that people are actually facing on the ground. So I think、um, these are all very precious goals that the film delivered. And I think we did reach that goal because, for example, one of the screenings was held in Washington, D.C. Where we、uh, invited a lot of, for example, congressional staffers, journalists, and people in the China or Hong Kong policy arena to attend and watch. And after watching, they felt a new kind of momentum or a new kind of spark to continue working for Hong Kong and bringing、uh, Hong Kong's issue to the agenda because they see how it looks like. Uh, as a human being suffering in these situations. And that's why I think the film really has a lot of、uh, different k i n d of values that we come to see. And I'm glad to say that、uh, we did achieve the goals we set out. Great, yeah. I was also really struck by the film when it tries to be this very broad and comprehensive documentary, but at the same time, it really retains the anecdotes and the characters of the people interviewed. Like,、mm-hmm. they're not just like, Anonymous protester number 13. It's like they have actual stories that are developed throughout the film, and I think that's really precious. Exactly.、Um, so, yeah. so this was your, was this your first time distributing a film? Yes, for sure. And actually, one thing I did want to add to what you said earlier was that I think one thing that is so precious about the film is that. It focuses more on the anonymous protesters than you know,、um, the more prominent activists that we come to know.、Right. And I think that is the most accurate depiction of the 2019 movement because these days,、uh, when I look at Hong Kong, of course, because of the national security law, because of everyone you know, being in exile trying to resettle,、um, it has become you know, a natural tendency that the Hong Kong movement is usually. Uh, represented or you, as you know, this movement led by certain individuals. But we all know it's not the truth, right? The 2019 movement was decentralized, and every one of those anonymous protesters made it happen. And they have a lot of sacrifices that are left unseen or you know, unspoken just because they did not reveal their name or their faces. And so I really liked that aspect of the film that it honored. Uh, the frontline protesters, the anonymous protesters, and to say that and to highlight、uh, not only their presence, but their instrumental role and their significance in the movement itself. So, yeah, that's just something、um, I thought of when you were talking about your thoughts about the movie as well. Right. I really like how Joshua Wong doesn't make an appearance in the movie until like. Two hours, 15 minutes into the movie, and it's about to end. And it's like, oh, right, yeah, him too. It's like, yeah, it's really nice that way.、Um, so, yeah, what were the steps in distributing an independent film? Really, you know, there's no studio behind it in the US. And, like, did you have to call the theaters one by one? And basically, how did you put butts in the seats? And how did you put the movies on the screen? 
Mm -hmm. It's definitely a very complicated and complex process uh, that everyone just have to learn on the go. And in the very beginning, when they asked me uh, if I would like to, you know, distribute the films for them, I was like, okay, if it's only one or two cities, I can probably do so with some help from my friends who were uh, in the film industry. But then when when I thought, okay, we should probably expand the project to, you know, this nationwide campaign, uh, the second thought I had was like, holy shit, how am I going to do that? And that's why I think it's really fortunate that I met a lot of community organizers that were uh, very, very passionate and very helpful. And the way we did it was, okay, first uh, I connected with uh, the community organizers that I knew before um, even I joined HADC. And I just asked them, okay, if you would like to help with organizing the screenings. And some of them said yes immediately. And so we started getting quotes from cinemas. We did have to code call and code email all of them. And of course, a lot of them did not respond because they didn't know you know, what the heck HADC is doing here. Yeah. They didn't know us as a film distributor. When they opened our website, they're like, don't you guys do you know, uh, advocacy you know, in DC area? Why are you here in New York distributing film? So it took us some time uh, to th explain yeah. to people what we're trying to do here and we also had to you know draft up some uh, proposals to show uh, theaters what we're trying to do and uh, that was all done in collaboration with community organizers and they did uh, also pull a lot of their personal connections to find uh, film theaters that would be helpful and so we started with New York first and then we expanded to other uh, uh, cities, for example, you know, Los Angeles, San Francisco. And actually some of them did have some experience because a few years ago, some of them organized a screening with uh, 10 years, another movie in Hong mm. Kong that was pro-democracy. Uh, but then there were still a lot of groups that didn't have any experience. And I didn't have experience as well, obviously. And also, uh, each theater, I think, works in a very different way. You know, there are more commercialized right. theater that have a very super clear, you know, instructions for you uh, to let you know what kind of information or documents they need. But then there are also family-run businesses that, you know, value interpersonal connection more, that you have to, you know, chit-chat with them on the phone to really build that close relationship for them to allow you to screen the film. So in the end, I think it's a hybrid really of, um, you know, a lot of different skill sets coming together. But uh, I think ultimately the steps really, a lot of it is uh, utilizing community efforts. Because when you start working on campaigns like that, you realize um, you cannot do everything from where I am in DC. You have to actually be on the ground and you have to meet the people. You have to call email them. You have to pull personal connections. And that's why I think having a strong community, it's so important all the time because it's a community that is making changes step by step. And it's the community that uh, pulls opportunities together. And we're just the one, you know, who are trying to connect them and build that network. But really the work itself at the end of the day is done by a lot of community members. So yeah, that was, you know, what I would say about the steps. But um, one thing I remember uh, was that I have to learn a lot of new glossaries along the way. Like, okay, you have to have mm -hmm. this film file that is specific for uh, film screening, which is called the KPI right. format. 
that I didn't know before. You know, when I was doing student films, of course, we would just use uh, MOV or like MP4 yeah. or whatever. <laughs> but then in theaters, you actually need a KPI file, which needs some keys and certs to yeah. authorize the theaters to use. So a lot of these things, I think, I was just learning with the community at the time. But、uh, gladly we pulled it off in the end. You have to make a DCP, which stands yeah, for Digital DCP, Cinema yes, Package,、yes. which costs like. <laughs> Well, I don't know how much it costs for you, but it costs like five figures at least, which is kind of yes crazy. If you think about it, you can why, why can't you just drag a file in QuickTime to play it in the theater? But yeah, it's more complicated than that. By community organizers, did you mean like overseas Hong Kongers associations or more like American local city-based organizations? Right. So by organizations, I think there are two types that were helping us with the screening. So the first type was definitely. Hong Konger Americans who have been,、mm. you know, organizing in the U.S. since 2019, and some of them even started way back in 1989 when the June 4th massacre happened, and they helped people go overseas.、Um, but a lot of them were essentially groups formed in 2014, the Umbrella Revolution, or 2019, the Hong Kong Movement,、um, and they, you know, they were the ones that did not have a lot of experience, but a lot of passion to pull all these things together.、Mm-hmm. But then. Then、um, the other type of organizations that helped were actually um, um, American film societies.、Uh, specifically, a lot of them were Asian American film societies that were just interested in、uh, the Hong Kong movement and wanted to amplify for our cause. So they were really helpful partners as well. Nice. So correct me if I'm wrong, but based on the timing and the location of the screenings. I believe there was this hope that the film can potentially be brought to the Oscar stage, and ultimately it failed to make the shortlist, which we know is a very difficult and long-winded process. So, what were the lessons you learned from that? Right. So、um, that is definitely a very good observation. There was、uh, the plan to hopefully push the film into Oscars as a way, you know, to gain more exposure for the Hong Kong movement because Hong Kong is cycling out of the news we see now, and.、Um, You know, even though we met the entry requirements,、uh, I think there were two things that made the film, you know, fall short of, you know,、uh, entering the shortlist. The first thing was definitely because we didn't have enough time.、Um, by the time HEDC received,、uh, you know, the their invitation or request、uh, to show the film, it was already, I think, late October, early November ish. But then、uh, you actually need a longer time than that. Uh, for people to really organize a good enough film screening to happen in December, and I think if we had more time to organize, we could have thought of more side events, for example,、uh, to invite film critics or you know people who have、uh, influence in the filmmaking circle to make the film you know seen by more people outside of the Hong Kong community. And、uh, secondly, I think、uh, because we didn't have a lot of film distribution、um, or you know film marketing experience before, so、uh, we didn't exactly know you know which kind of people we should be targeting in the very beginning. And of course, a lot of Hong Kongers would love to see the film、uh, when it first came. So in the end, I think the film attendance、uh, in the December round, at least, was good towards Hong Kongers in the U.S. Uh, even though we did make an effort to create a list of film critics to invite them, but I think because the film did not have enough、uh, traction,、uh, 
by then, even though it has been in the Cannes、uh, Festival before, but still it didn't have enough traction in the U.S. filmmaking scene. So when we invited film critics, it's difficult for them to say yes immediately as well because they don't know what they're signing up for,、um, and they didn't、right. want to, you know, sit through a three-hour movie without, you know, knowing the background or what it is about. So I think、um, if we had more time and if we had more experience,、uh, we could have made it possible.、Um, but there's also, you know, one more concern or one more theory from people, which is just that. In the filmmaking scene, there are actually a lot of Chinese investors and、uh, CCP influence.、Um, for example, previously you have seen how、um, the Chinese、uh, film investors, you know, those who are backed by the CCP, obviously,、uh, were funding a lot of Hollywood movies, for instance. And when I was, you know, still a filmmaker in NYU, I saw how there were a lot of、uh, CCP funders actively seeking、uh, student films or up and rising filmmakers to fund, just because it's gonna be a way for them to、uh, change or tweak that narrative in a way that favors China. So I think with that overall environment in the filmmaking industry, I would understand how a film like Revolution of Our Times, a film that is essentially Exposing、uh, the human rights atrocities of the CCP, it would not be the most popular or welcoming film for people. People may have to have a second thought of thinking if it's wise for them to support a film like that. So, and when you have the second thought, of course, a lot of people would just say no immediately because there's not enough of an incentive for them to go and watch and support the film. So, I think that also possibly contributed to、um, the reason why ROT did not get. As much exposure as other films would, but in the end, it's a theory that nobody can prove. But I think that's、uh, the tricky part. But ultimately, if we had more time, and hopefully the next time when other Hong Kong films tries to enter the Oscars shortlist,、uh, people would have more experience to know the best way to strategize. Right. I lament the way the film industry, especially the Oscars and the awards industry, is kind of like an insiders club、yeah. where you have to know the rules and the people to get in. And I think it's really unfortunate. Obviously, there are a lot of people around the world who think, oh, film festivals or Oscars or awards are the proper way and the best way to get recognition, and that's the way to go. But I think. You know, there's something precious and noble about the community-based screenings that I think is just as valid as a way of distributing a film as you know targeting awards and chasing that kind of glory because that kind of stuff it can be vain, but actually connecting with the community is something that we should prioritize. So yeah, I'm very grateful for the campaign that you guys took on. So I'm wondering, do you think you faced any difficulties translating this or introducing this film to American audiences and people who weren't familiar with the history and the details of the movement? Yeah, I think、um, yes and no actually. Because,、um, for example, in the December round of screening, I attended the ones in、uh, Washington D.C. and the ones in New York City. And I received, you know, very different feedbacks. I think from different showings. So, for example, there were some people who had no knowledge of the Hong Kong movement at all,、right. uh, telling me that they thought the film was very comprehensive and、uh, enough to explain the entire dynamics. You know, why people would resort to, for example, violent protesting in the end, and things like that. 
But then I would also hear people who were supportive of the Hong Kong movement uh, saying that it shows that the Hong Kong movement is really violent after watching the film, which I think I was a bit surprised that people would say that because I thought the film really explained why Hong Kong protesters would have to resort to, you know, the ways that they have devised later on to counter the very harsh police violence that we saw in the film. So I think there's, you know, definitely difficulty in translating and introducing and, you know, really contextualizing uh, Hong Kong's movement to American audiences, uh, also because of, you know, the different sorts of movements that uh, America has seen over the past years. So one thing I remember was uh, after one of the New York screenings, one of the audience, an American audience uh, stayed after and asked me, uh, he saw some American flags in, you know, the mm. revolution of our times. And he was very curious about why are U.S. flags showing up there? And why are mm. Hong Kongers, you know, saying something directed at Trump? Like, what is Trump's relationship with Hong Kong's movement? And what does America has to do, you know, have a global way in Hong yeah. Kong? So I think that part, for example, is not introduced very comprehensively. Hong Kongers will understand because we have been following the developments, right? But when an American see it in their country, uh, they would scratch their head and wonder, okay, what's going on here? Um, so I think yeah. those parts are the parts that we need more, you know, introducing and translation before or after the film screening. Um, and because, you know, it's so contextual based, I would imagine, you know, people in France watching the movie, they probably wouldn't ask, you know, the same question because for them, they would just think, oh, it's probably because, um, you know, America has such a prominent role in uh, foreign policy. So it's natural that people are, you know, waving American flags or, you know, some thoughts like that. So I think it's interesting, you know, later on in the April campaign, when the revolution of our films team really tried to bring the film to a lot of different countries, you know, around the world, then we start to see, you know, more and more, you know, different responses to the film. For example, people in Taiwan, they would think about, they would relate it to their own history. And then they would think about, you know, the possible next steps for Taiwan, as well as in the end uh, of the film, when Taiwan was hinted as this haven for some protesters to go to. Uh, versus in America, they would just think about, okay, so what are Hong Kongers asking the American governments to do? So yeah, there's definitely a difficult translation there at some point. But in the end, I think overall, uh, because the Hong Kong movement was so widely known in America back in 2019, you know, with the, you know, very packed protests and, you know, a lot of video clips that people see online, so it's not as difficult for them to, to understand, but still there are minute details that I actually thought uh, film you know, organizers or uh, community organizers could better explain in the screenings. Right. I mean, as someone who works in the US, I wish there is an easy and simple way to explain <laughs> the whole Trump and US connection, but unfortunately reality is very complicated and I think for a lot of people, seeing the American flag is like an immediate turn off, and yeah, it is very thorny yeah. in that part. But Actually, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think mm -hmm. yeah, because I, I do I think, think the film, you know, mm -hmm. did the best it could. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And the thing is, like the symbol of American flag in the twenty nineteen Hong Kong movement was so different from what it stands for and represents here in the U.S. So it's even right. more difficult to 
explain to people after the showing because by then they have already formulated a certain association in their minds that what these flags are standing for. So there, will, <laughs> there was definitely a challenge there. But yeah, hopefully I think people understood in the end that what Hong Kongers uh, were trying to do was to appeal to, for example, the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act that was being introduced uh, in the Congress back in 2019 as a way to uh, hold the Chi uh, Hong Kong government accountable. And that is definitely something I think people could right. understand after explaining, yeah. Yeah, now that I think about it, I think it's very impressive the way the film is mostly about the street-level fight, but mm -hmm. still managed to include or convey the scope of the more diplomatic side of the whole movement. So after this initial wave of the screenings in December, there were another wave of screenings in April, and this time it was more worldwide. So mm -hmm. were you involved with that? And as I think that part was very interesting, how there were these kind of hybrid online and then community-based screenings. The whole thing was very fluid and innovative, I think, as a way of film distribution. So I'm wondering if you were involved in that at all. Yeah, so uh, for sure. So actually, after the December round of screening that happened in the U.S., uh, which was actually the first uh, public premiere of the film. Before that, the film was not really shown in any uh, public domain other than film festivals. So after that round of screening, uh, we ha I had an evaluation meeting with the team at the, uh, Revolution of Our Times to really talk about the things we have learned. And in that meeting, they told me, oh, actually, we are thinking of uh, Chin Kao Tongbo, which is a, a mm -hmm. synchronized screening across the globe uh, for next year. And I was like, whoa, that's a lot of work. But uh, hopefully, I think people could pull it off because uh, during the U.S. campaign, there were actually a lot of comments under our posts about, oh, is HADC going to come to, you know, Australia, the U.K. or, you know, other places. But of right. course, in the end, uh, in the April uh, global screening, HADC was responsible for uh, the part in the U.S. So uh, in the global campaign, HADC kind of uh, really dominated and led uh, the U.S.-wide campaign. But of course, once again, we partnered up with a lot of community groups that I mentioned before to make the uh, campaign happen. So it was definitely an interesting you know, experience because on one hand, I was continuing with that partnership with uh, groups in the U.S. who I have worked before. On the other hand, uh, I also had to communicate with other organizers around the globe because we were the first group that had experience in organizing that sort of nationwide campaign. So there would be, you know, organizers in, for example, Norway, Sweden, or, you know, France, or Thailand, um, they would ask me, how did you do the film screening before? And how did you, for example, contact with the film theater? How did you make sure, you know, the revolution of our times, DCP format worked, like a lot of mm -hmm. these things. And uh, I was glad that I could help because I think I completely understood the beginner or the rookie mistakes that people could uh, make and how it felt when you were working under time pressure and when you 
really look forward to the screening to come to a success, but you have that fear that it's gonna you know fall apart uh, and things are always gonna go wrong, like Murphy's Law. So um, it was a very interesting experience because I think at that time I was actually building a wider coalition or a wider network with other global activists uh, and global organizers whom I've never met before and uh, whom I've never even spoken to before. But uh, somehow it reminds me of uh, how I was organizing the uh, G20 newspaper campaign in 2019 because mm-hmm. at that time it was also a global campaign that I had to work with, you know, volunteers from around the world that I have never met or spoken to before. But we would just, you know, try to solve issues together. So that kind of spirit, that kind of wanting something to happen so badly uh, reminded me a lot or, you know, reminded me a lot of, you know, some of the parts of the 2019 movement. So that was, I think that was definitely a very interesting experience and empowering uh, to some extent. Of course, um, there was also some friction in the entire, you know, global campaign organizing, um, because for a lot of people, they are all learning on the go. And there would be a lot of anxiety of dealing with something that you have no idea of how to do and no lot knowledge of before so um, catering to people's emotion understanding people's fears and understanding people's anxiety was also something i learned on the way and in the end i understand actually when we talk about campaign organizing community organizing it's easy to think that the difficulty lies in logistics you know making it happen making it insane and blah 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 But I think in the end, what matters the most, even in the screening, whether it's, you know, the U.S. nationwide screening or the global screening, the most important and difficult thing is always maintaining human relations and managing, you know, how people interact and communicate with each other. Because it's only with trust, with enough trust, enough uh, communication and honesty that you can actually make a campaign work and thrive. And I'm very happy that, you know, in the U.S., I think we did make it happen because um, we did have, you know, good relations and we did, you know, build a much stronger Hong Kong connection based on that U.S. uh, nationwide screening. So, yeah, there were a lot of, you know, lessons I've learned, but I think this is by far the most important one I've learned. Right. Just to clarify in April, Revolution of Our Times held a series of worldwide screenings that were all synchronous and it was kind of like a live event, which I think is a very innovative way to distribute a film, which is it's not the first time that it's been done, but it definitely creates this kind of momentum and importance and sense of community to the screenings that was very much needed than just, you know, oh, this week we're dumping this movie to a thousand theaters, that kind of typical US distribution model. And right. it's always good to think out of the box. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think when you think about that, it may have been the first uh, event that consolidates the identity of the Hong Kong diaspora. Because back in 2019, you wouldn't have considered Hong Kong as a diaspora yet, just because there were not really the concept of you know going into Excel uh, across community members at the time. And after 2020, the national security law, a lot of people had to go into exile. But I think most people spent the year of 2020 and 2021 to settle down, to understand how the new environment worked, and also, you know, to flee 
from Hong Kong, which was definitely a very traumatizing experience. And while, as I said earlier, while people were going into exile, cultural products were also going into exile. And in 2021, people really started to、uh, consolidate the idea of the Hong Kong diaspora, and people started to、uh, step out of that traumatizing period to think about what could be done. And it,、right. you know, now when I think about it, other than you know protests that were happening across the globe. Probably the film screening of the Revolution of Our Times,、um, the April film screening, was the first one the Hong Kong diaspora brought together globally. So I would guess that down the road,、um, you know, when historians or academics look into it, it will probably bear a more important significance than just being a cultural event because it really is not. It has a lot of political implication of forming that Hong Kong diaspora. Right. Do you consider film or film distribution in this case specifically to be a form of activism? Yeah, I would definitely consider it to be a form of activism. But at the same time, I'm not sure if activism captures that idea of the film screening the most because in activism you're advocating for something. But I think the film screening is more than just. Advocating for Hong Kong's cause for freedom and democracy,、uh, as it documents what happened.、Um, at the same time, I thought it was also a space for people to do some collective healing. One thing I remember was after、uh, we did the New York film screening, we had a short, you know, Q and A session.、Uh, it was、mm. moderated by me, and、uh, the speaker was Nathan Law. And when the film ended,、um, and then people sang, you know,、um, the、uh, Hong Kong's anthem,、uh, "Glory Be Hong Kong," and the lights are, you know, switch on, and all of a sudden I see all the people's faces, and on their faces, it's a very peculiar look I haven't seen in a long time. It's a look of mixed emotions, of a lot of anger, trauma, depression. Confusion, you know, not knowing what to do, hopelessness. But at the same time, you see people, you know, sharing tissue paper to strangers, you know, patting on strangers' shoulders, and trying to comfort each other. And at that time, I thought, you know, even though you know the screening campaign, we wanted to have more, you know, non-Hong Konger community members in the very beginning. But I think one thing that we got out of that was unexpected was that. People managed to finally have a space to look at what happened in twenty nineteen, and I think that is something that has been lacking、uh, for you know a few years. And what I mean is not that people are forgetting about the movement. Of course not. That's what we talk about all the time. But I think is to allow yourself to have a space to actually sit down and look at what happened and remember those emotions that have traumatized you and pained you very deeply. Even though it's definitely a very painful experience, because for example, I myself, I if I were not、uh, organizing the campaign, I probably wouldn't have dared to watch the movie itself because I just think、right. it's too painful.、Um, but in the end, I think there was a value for people to watch it because people could finally understand what traumatized them so deeply, and、uh, what was that collective pain and collective trauma we all shared. And from that collective trauma, 
is the entrance to building a stronger diaspora that is understanding and empathetic to what each other is experiencing, so that we can emerge as a supportive network for each other. So I think other than、uh, using the film as a means to activism, which I definitely think it is,、uh, another very useful,、uh, you know, objective or another medium that it is is definitely the space for people to. Be sentimental to look at themselves, to be vulnerable, and to understand the vulnerability exists collectively in our community, and we're not alone in that struggle with trauma, but we are all in it together, just trying to survive as human beings. Right. Personally, I had avoided this film until I absolutely had to see it for、Same. this interview. <laughs> Yeah. And it was it's I had to pause it like five times, and it was very very difficult, really difficult at times. And、um, so, closing questions: Can we expect more from the distribution of this film? Can we expect it on other platforms, or is that out of your jurisdiction? Yes.、Yeah, so、um, right now, the film is available on demand on Vimeo, that people can、mm. watch it, you know, individually at home for you know private recreational filming, but definitely not commercial screenings. And for you know wider uh, distribution, uh, that is definitely something、uh, I have you know discussed with the ROT team. But of course, as you know, out of my jurisdiction, is their call what they want to do with the film. But one thing I know they have been trying to do, and I've been trying to find connections for it as well, is to have the film up on, for example, Netflix, Amazon Prime,、right. or large scale streaming platforms that really would have. A lot more audience and you know a further reach, but so far we have not been able to find any connections. So if anyone listening to this podcast right now you know works at Amazon Prime or you know Netflix or any platforms or have connections on these platforms, please you know let us know, and hopefully one day we can see the film you know entering the mainstream and、uh, letting more people to know the actual human stories in 2019. And see that accurate depiction of the movement as a Hong Kong city-wide、uh, protest that is supported by anonymous protesters. Right, I think we're all looking forward to that day. And on similar note, is arts and culture now officially part of the HKDC agenda, or you know, can we expect more arts and culture outreach from HKDC in the future? Mm-hmm. So、uh, since right now, as I've said in the beginning, HDC mostly works on three pillars of work, which are efficacy, diaspora building, and research and education. We definitely have more thoughts for future, you know, diaspora building、uh, programs that would involve preserving the identity of a Hong Konger and、uh, helping materials that are banned in Hong Kong to find their space in the U.S. But at the same time, we're not playing monopoly here. We're not trying to monopolize that entire, you、right. know, film screening model in the U.S. And that's why, you know. Uh, after the revolution of our times,、uh, film screening. Once we have built that network of、uh, nationwide film screening campaign in the U.S., we have passed on or and shared that resource and network with other groups such as you know、uh, we the Hong Kongers or a lot of different groups that are doing community-wide film screenings to continue with their work. For HADC, everyone can stay tuned.、Uh, it would not be about film in the future, but we definitely. Have other arts and culture stuff cooking up, and especially because I myself 
was an aspiring artist before um, my political career and political work, and that's why uh, I also am making an effort to make Hong Kong's uh, cultural identity at least uh, to be able to preserve ins- itself in the U.S. and in the international arena. So uh, what we're looking at is perhaps you know in the future uh, literature and other cultural products and also. Helping artists to find their spot and find their space in the U.S. Other than just you know helping them with the distribution, because from what we're seeing right now, we can expect more people going into exile、uh, as Hong Kong space for free expression is diminishing. So when these artists are going abroad, they need to find a way to sustain themselves. They need to find ways to understand the new space, and they need to find ways to enrich their capacity. And that is something HADC can. And help with down the road. So stay tuned, and、uh, hopefully we can roll out some exciting new programs for everyone to see in the future. Right. I I definitely think you're still an artist. <laughs> you weren't an expiring artist. You're still an artist because I think you know distributing a film like this is part of the art making process. It's pointless if there's no audience for a piece of art. So yeah, thank you so much for your hard work. Um. So before we wrap up, do you have any? More points you want to bring up, or any questions you might have? Um. Yeah. So、uh, I think one thing I want to bring up is just for everyone to realize why it's important to preserve Hong Kong's culture and why it's important to support these films, because as I've said before, it's not only about you know. Watching the film, or you know, advancing Hong Kong's sense of identity, but also for people to understand, there is a group of Hong Kongers here in the international、mm-hmm. arena. And even though with everything that's happening inside of Hong Kong, Hong Kongers are still working hard to establish and assert our sense of identity that is unique and distinct in its own way. So in the long run, the group of Hong Kongers and the identity of Hong Kongers. Would never be erased from history. Right, and by these films, Anna means other than a revolution of our times, there are also other landmark documentaries that have been made by Hong Kong filmmakers, even though the conditions are very difficult, such as Inside the Red Brick Wall, Late Ai Wai Sing, Taking Back the Legislature, Tibing La Fa Wei, and then just this year, Blue Island, Yawazi Do, and. It might be a little difficult to find these films, but actually they have all been screening in major cities, and some of them in commercial chain cinemas. So it's also on the audience part to seek them out as much as it is on the film's part to reach out. Yeah, I have one more thing to add. I think you know, besides the very explicitly、uh, political films, there's also merit to. You know the more casual Hong Kong-made films that we're seeing right now, especially、uh, at Hong Kong on screen.、Uh, for example, Fan Hei Gong Sam is one of the you know、right. Hong Kong domestically made movie that we should support. And the reason I say that is because、um, even though these movies are not political, and we don't even know if those people you know support democracy to start with,、um, but as you have seen in John Lee's latest、uh, policy address, he's actually promoting. Uh, and supporting Hong Kong filmmakers to cooperate more with CCP-backed filmmakers in the Greater Bay Area, and the reason they want to do it is to eventually replace the Hong Kong identity with the Greater Bay Area identity, so that、um, you know in the future they can actually diminish the presence of a Hong Konger. So when I talk about you know watching Hong Kong's film. 
is really not only about political films, but really、uh, Hong Kong filmmakers who try to continue with domestically produced、uh, films that do not accept influence or support from the CCP. But they try to maintain the autonomy in the very, very little art-making space that they have, and they don't have a lot of money to start with. They don't have a lot of resources,、mm-hmm. and of course, because they're not catering to the mainland Chinese audience, and because they're using Cantonese,、um, the audience they can reach is mostly the seven million Hong Kongers they have, and、uh, even with that, is. Not a big enough population to support a vibrant film making industry, and that's why it's very important for people outside of Hong Kong to support them as well to sustain that space and to allow Hong Konger domestically made film, you know, to thrive. And、uh, oh, sorry, I I ramble a lot, but one more thing I want to add is just right now you see the HAETO office, the Hong Kong Economic and Trade、uh, offices, you know, around the world,、right. which are de facto Hong Kong embassies. In my opinion, they are also trying to、um, have or host film festivals, but of course, these film festivals are not necessarily screening, you know, outrightly political film that glorify、uh, the CCP. But in the curation process, I think it would be good if they can focus on more Hong Kong domestically film, you know, in the future as well. But if they don't do that, I think it's very important for us to realize、uh, we should be the ones supporting. You know Hong Kong domestically film Hong Kong domestic films because the Hong Kong government is not the biggest supporters of those. So、um, thank you so much for you know Hong Kong on screens, great work, and I think it's essential for people to continue watching and consuming and supporting、uh, Hong Kong domestic films, not only the political ones that are in exile, but you know the wider Hong Kong filmmaker industry. So yeah, thank you so much and. I'm so happy that we had this talk today. Right. Thank you so much for you as well, Anna. And hope we can see more from you in the future. And that marks the end of our episode. Thank you. Bye. Bye.